You're listening to Speaking of Quality, Wealth Management Insights with Hank Smith, a podcast by the Haverford Trust Company. On Speaking of Quality, Hank chats with authors, influencers, and wealth management experts to bring a sense of clarity and calm to the complexity and stress of personal finance. And now, here's your host, Hank Smith. I'm your host, Hank Smith, Director and Head of Investment Strategy at the Haverford Trust Company. On this podcast, we'll explore topics ranging from quality investing, retirement resilience, stock market trends, estate planning, behavioral psychology, and more. Joining me today is Bob Pisani. Bob is a well-known financial journalist who has covered Wall Street and the stock market for over 25 years. Bob currently works at CNBC as a senior markets correspondent covering the global stock market, IPOs, ETFs, and a myriad of other financial topics. He's been with CNBC since 1990 and has reported on some of the biggest financial news stories of the past few decades, including the 2008 financial crisis, the dot-com boom and bust, and the ongoing evolution of the ETF industry. Bob, I had the pleasure of reading your book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, on a flight from Philadelphia to Phoenix on the way to speaking at a conference in Scottsdale. I was so impressed with how enjoyable that book was, how informative, how fun, uh, that uh, it was one of the two books I recommended at the end of my talk at the conference. The second book I recommended, you actually referenced in your book, The Psychology of Money by Morgan uh, Housel. So with that, uh, please tell us how you came up with this oxymoronic title of Shut Up and Keep Talking. Well, thank you, Hank. It's a pleasure to, to, to be with you. Uh, I've been with CNBC for 33 years, which is an extraordinarily long time. Very few people stay at one job for that long, and particularly in the journalism business. I've been the stocks correspondent for 27 years now, going on 27 years. Uh, and when I decided to write a book to summarize what I thought I knew about investing and tell a few funny celebrity stories and a little bit of, you know, life wisdom kind of things. And I was talking to the publisher a few years ago and he said, I need a title. And he said, you got any suggestions? And I said, well, I want to call it lessons on life and investing from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And he said, well, that's nice, but that's a subtitle. That's not a title. I need a title, something interesting, catchy, and he said, so tell me, you, when you're going on TV, what do the producers say to you? And I said, well, you know, they could say anything you want, but I, I wear an IFB, which is one of these things you put in your ear and it cooks wirelessly to the control room. And the producer can say, hi, Bob, uh, you know, you're up next. Uh, and you'll, you're talking to, uh, uh, to David, for example. Um, but usually what they'll say is some variation on the phrase wrap, uh, which means shut up or the phrase stretch, which means keep talking. So I said, they can say anything you want, but there's usually some variation on shut up and keep talking. And he said, that's it. That is the title. Shut up and keep talking. So it's really uh, about what the producers say. It certainly is a very catchy uh, title. You know, we share something in common. We both worked for the same firm for over 32 years. For me, it's uh, been very simple. I, I love what I do and I love the people I have worked with and continue to work with, and I am treated well. And I suspect there's some of that in your reasoning for being with CNBC for this long. CNBC is a wonderful place to work. Uh, it, it's very congenial. 
Um, the television business can be very cutthroat. There are very famous stories and TV series about competitions and how difficult it is. And that is true. But I found CNBC to be very congenial. I've also found and been lucky to be at the New York Stock Exchange and to be with another organization, the New York Stock Exchange. I don't work for them, but I'm here. Uh, I'm embedded essentially in the NYSC. And it turns out these are two wonderful organizations. I was here at a time when the NYSC was probably at its absolute height in the mid-1990s. Uh, the floor has become much less influential due to um, growth of electronic trading. It's a good example of technological disruption. But the bottom line is, I've been treated well. I, I love the job. I asked to stay here uh, at this particular job, and CNBC has been gracious enough to allow me to do that. Um, I, like I said, a lot, very few people last in the same job for a long time. But I always say, Hank, what would people ask me why I've been here so long? I say, well, what would you give to meet all your heroes? What would you give to meet every <laughs> rock star or politician or anybody you wanted to meet? I guarantee you they'd come and run the bell. I figured out that there were, since I got here in the 96 or 97, there were, there's been 10,000 bell ringings. That's an awful lot of people to, to say hello to. From a viewer's perspective, uh, having that continuity of personality, it's like you're waking up to your family. You know, you put on the first show, Squawk Box, and, it, and it's been the same crew for a long time, and you've been there for a long time, and you, and you talk about some of the people like Sue Herrera and Bill Griffith that have been there since the beginning. Uh, and, and that makes a difference. That's why I think you have such a consistent, you know, viewership. Yes. The people tend to stay for a, a long time and, um, you do get, viewers do get to know you and feel like they get to know you. And every once in a while, if you say something that's kind of out of character for you, you'll get a comment or you'll get a Twitter thing. Like that was a weird thing to say. You know, Bob said something right. strange. I wonder why he feels this way. So you do. You're right. People tend to think they get to know you. Because uh, they listen to you. Let me just share an anecdote with you. Uh, I was actually part of ringing the closing bell in January 17th of 07. And I remember the at the time our host was Catherine Kinney, who was the president and co-chief operating officer. And I asked her, uh, Catherine, you've done a lot of these. What is a highlight for you? And she didn't hesitate. She said, uh, when Steven Spielberg, after ringing the bell, turned to me and said, this is the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. And so it is a it is a really uh, great experience. And and you talk a lot in your book uh, or you write a lot in your book about some of the impromptu interviews that you are able to get to. And they're not easy. Uh, do you want to share a few of those? In 2005, uh, the head of Warner music uh, was going public. Warner Music was going public. And the head of Warner Music, Edgar Bronfman Jr., came to ring the bell. And he brought along Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Uh, they were on the roster at the time. And what you do is when you go on the balcony, uh, there's a red button to press and you're supposed to hold it down uh, for 10 seconds uh, and not longer <laughs> and then let go. Uh, and instead of ringing the bell, what happened was they had hooked Jimmy Page. He brought a guitar and they they plugged it into the amp system, the amplifying system, and he played the opening to Whole Lot of Love on it. <laughs> and there were, you know, 300 traders on the floor holding worn vinyl copies of Led Zeppelin records, Led Zeppelin one and two. They were, they knew he was going to come. They didn't know he was going to play this. And he starts playing this like really, really loud. The bell rings. You can barely hear the thing. People are screaming and I'm screaming and, and we, 
when you ring the bell and you go down the stairs, there's two ways you can go. You can go down the, go down a flight of stairs and you can go right, go, takes you to a little passage that goes out on Broad Street and you go to your car, or you can go left and it takes you down a little passage that goes onto the floor of the stock exchange. So I'm standing there, they finished ringing the bell, I'm standing there with a microphone, a cameraman, it's 150 guys behind me wanting to meet Jimmy Page, and, and Gerbronfen comes down and comes out to the floor. I said, hello, Edgar. Nice to see you. Where's Jimmy? And he said, Jimmy didn't come. He made the right turn and went out because Jimmy has, Jimmy doesn't like getting around crowds that much. Uh, <laughs> we sort of knew that. We're a little disappointed. Um, but it, there's a lot of wonderful ways um, that you can talk to people uh, on the floor. Some of them are more reluctant to talk than others. Um, so the, the key to getting this interesting is, is this Find what motivates people. People ask me all the time, how can I make an impression on someone? It's very simple. Find what they really, really want to talk about. And most of the time, it's not what they're there to do. So, for example, um, Aretha Franklin, one of my great heroes, she came on the floor in 2008 for a Christmas party. She had a Christmas album out. It was a lousy year. Remember 2008? Terrible year. But she comes for the Christmas party. And I knew she did not particularly want to talk about the Christmas album, although that's what we did talk about. I knew that there was this movie out, Ray, about Ray Charles, and it was a biopic explaining how Ray Charles helped invent soul music. And I said to her, you know, Ray, this movie is really wonderful. People love it. It's like an educational movie about soul music, and you were a part of all that. Are you interested in a movie on your life and explaining your contributions? And she just lit up, and I knew I hit it. Right there. That's what she wanted to talk about. And her manager came out after the interview was over and said, I didn't hear this interview because I was away from you. But whatever you did, I haven't seen her that animated in a while. So you hit the topic she cared about. And the that biopic about Aretha Franklin finally came out 14 years later. Unfortunately, she passed away before it happened. But it took mm-hmm. a long time to get it together. One other I would tell you that was interesting, getting somebody excited, Robert Downey Jr., He came on the floor in, I think it was 2013 or so. Iron Man 3 had come out. These were huge movies now. All of a sudden, the movies were bigger than the stars. Like the Marvel Comics run were so big that these were bigger. The movies were bigger than Robert Downey Jr., any star. So they were restricting access to movie stars. They didn't want them to say anything crazy. His people came over. This is Downey's people, not the NYC, and said, Robert's going to ring the bell. I said, I know. I'm very excited. And they said, well, he's not going to talk to you. I said, well, maybe he'll come by and maybe I'll be standing here. Maybe he'll just walk into him. Maybe. No, he's not going to talk to you. He's not going to talk to anybody. He's just going to ring the bell, <laughs> wave and walk away. And you're not going to bother. Him. I said, OK, fine. So they said this the day before I went home. I got the first Iron Man comic book. I collected comic books in the 60s. So I had Avenger one, the first Iron Man. Robert Downey rings the bell and he walks down and he's walking past me. And they had two guards put on either side of me. <laughs> So that I wouldn't be able to talk to him. This is how, like, they so serious, these people. And I held up the Iron Man comic book. I said, hey, Robert, you know this comic book? I'm yelling over the guards. And he looks at it, stops, and he says, is that the first Iron Man? And he comes over. I say, yes, it is. Come over and say hello to the CNBC viewers. And I got the interview. So that's what he cared about. He didn't care about, you know, what, you know, right. how does it feel to be Iron Man? He was interested in that because he understood that that was connected to the franchise he wanted to be a, a, a part of. And by the way, afterwards, the PR people came up to me and said, we told you he wasn't talking to you. And I said, you told me. You didn't tell Robert. Apparently, he <laughs> wanted to talk to me. He said, ah, whatever. So that's the point. Find out what people really want to talk about. 
and get them to talk about that. Right. That's great. Bob, take us through a typical weekday from from start to finish. Uh, I know you live in Philadelphia. Are you commuting every day back and forth or are there times you uh, no, I stay live, up? Uh, in your... I, I have an apartment up here, so I've been going back okay. and forth for a long, long time. Right, right. Um, but but the, uh, the the day usually gets <laughs> for years and years. I used to get up and look at the Tokyo stock market at 515 in the morning. Nowadays, I just glance at S&P futures uh, to, to see what's going on there. But I usually get up and then I, I come in and, um, you know, you used to stop and read the paper. Remember the days you stopped and read the journal and the New York Times? Today I get this all in a condensed version uh, and, and, and go through it to see what's what's there. But most of the time I get about 600 emails a day in the morning. And, and most of it consists of trading desk commentary, like here's what our housing analyst said today. And right. frankly, you know, a lot of it is just not <clears throat> worth a lot anymore. Um, a lot of it, the, a lot of the quality of research on Wall Street has gone down in the last 20 years. So your gain here is assessing this information, the economic data, other people might have said overnight and making a story out of it. And this, this is what I always say about the game and how you do this. Imagine like you're coming in and, um, there's a hundred stick'em notes on the wall, blank right. yellow stick'em notes. And your job is to fill in each one with a fact, but that's not enough because facts are not journalism. Your job is to connect these facts of today. These are the facts that matter today and connect the dots, show how these stories, these facts are connected. And that's journalism. Journalism is creating an arching, overarching narrative out of a series of facts and individual stories. And that's really the hard part, actually. It's not that interesting to say, you know, the, the consumer price index is up 2% today. So what? What does that mean? Is that good, bad, awful? How does that compare to other years? How does it compare to other data? It's creating a narrative that's really difficult. So to do that, you have to have very good research skills, very good writing skills, um, and very good interview skills. But it's the ability to create narrative that is the overarching skill and really distinguishes um, uh, one journalist from another, really. And you talk a lot in your book about uh, the voluminous amount of reading uh, that you do. And I can't help but uh, not ask this question uh, because you also talk about almost on a uh, daily basis uh, during the week of going out uh, and having drinks with uh, traders, uh, and in particular, Art Cashin, uh, which you share some just uh, absolutely fabulous stories about. And, and, I, and I'm thinking after reading uh, the first part of your book is there's so much drinking going on. How can these guys, how can these guys do what they do all, well, it, all day long? It's a, it, you know, it, it, the, that, that culture of working hard and playing hard has been embedded in Wall Street for you know, since the dawn of Wall Street. Uh, and uh, I always, I, I always, one of my jokes in my book is a part in the back called Maxims, which are sort of pithy summaries of things that I've learned by watching people. And one of the Maxims is, I don't know, it's Maxim 48 or something is um, when going out drinking with traders, stay one drink behind and shut up. So that means generally you want to uh, not try to keep up with them and uh, listen more than talk more. And that's generally pretty good advice for uh, that I found in general for going out with a lot of people. And, and I might just add, what a bonus 
uh, for me that those last two sections on the maxims and then your book recommendations or your bibliography, uh, that it, to me was worth the price of the book and particularly for young uh, people getting into this business, uh, they could do uh, nothing better than get that list of books and in the different broken out in the different categories because uh, I've read most of them they're, and they're just uh, great books and, and the maxims are, are a lot of fun. And I noticed your your tie is straight. Uh, <laughs> that was that was one of them. Uh, content is more important than whatever, but you st- than style, but you still have to have a straight tie. Yeah, um, th- there's a whole series of uh, comments on uh, just sort of how to present yourself. Um, uh, yes, uh, content always uh, trumps everything else, but make to- make sure your tie is straight, which is a pithy way of saying, uh, you know, you can you can practice all you want on what you're saying is the most important thing. But, you know, if you look like you spent the night in a washing machine on the spin cycle, and just got out of bed, it's still going to leave a subliminal impression on people. So little stuff like that matters a a lot. You mentioned books that matter. One of the things that's really interesting about writing a quasi-memoir where you look back at 30 years is how do you know what you know? Um, And you have to think about it. It's a real act of memory. uh, And you have to sort of realize, well, what do I know exactly? So you write down, I actually did this, you write down like five pages of this is what I think I kind of know. Besides funny celebrity stories. And then you think like, how did I come to know this? Who taught me this? I didn't, wasn't born this way. If somebody learned it somehow. And you think of like, what was the origin of the beliefs that you have? And then you start wondering, is it still all true? So I ended up realizing that there was only a half a dozen books and people that had the most influence. I've read dozens and dozens of books, but if you really think about what matters, it's still on my shelf behind me. Um, Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel, which came out in 94, uh, which talked about the long-term relationships between stocks and bonds, that stocks were the best investment long-term. He went back 200 years. That was groundbreaking financial research. So Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel. Um, Winning the Losers Game by Charlie Ellis, who'd been around since the 1970s. Yep. And Charlie Ellis showed that professional fund managers do not outperform. Um, in general, he was one of those people that did that, along with uh, Burton Malkiel, who wrote A Random Walk Down Wall Street that helped popularize the concept of indexing. He was one of the people that proposed the average person would be better off owning an index fund like the S&P 500. But there was no way to do that in the 1970s. And eventually Bogle was able to do that. Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, he opened the uh, S&P, uh, the Vanguard S&P fund in uh, uh, 75, I believe, or six, I recall. And um, so the fourth book was Common Sense on Mutual Funds by Jack Bogle, which came out in, in 99, 1999, as I recall. And that was an exhaustive analysis of uh, stocks versus bonds and indexing in general. And those those people, I realized, were the ones that had the biggest influence on me. And their books still sit on my shelf and I use them as references uh, even even uh, to this day. Did you ever think when you were teaching real estate with your father at the Wharton School, that uh, you would be in the business that you've been in now for the past 27 years? No, it was a little bit outside what I thought I was going to end up doing. In 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 the 1960s and 1970s, I grew up, in, I was born in the Bronx, but I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia, beautiful bucolic area on the Delaware River. And my father was a developer, or he built an apartment 
uh, houses, very successful. And in, oh, it was 1977 or so, um, he took me aside and called me into his office and said, Robert, um, how'd you like to go into business with me? You know, Ralph Bassani and Sons. And I had worked for him on his projects. I mean, physically worked for him. Uh, I mean, I worked with the carpenters and the electricians carrying wood. I knew how a building physically went up because I held, I carried the trusses and helped, you know, carry wood for the carpenters. And he said, the real money is in the financing and arranging. And it's the business dealings. And you don't know much about that. You only know how the physical building goes up. And why don't you consider doing that with me? And, you know, we can you know, be a partner together. And I said, you know, I turned down. I said, Dad, I, I want to be a journalist. I want to be a writer. I want to write books. Norman Mailer was my hero then. Tom Wolfe, Hunter S. Thompson. These guys were big public intellectuals. They wrote famous books. And I'll never forget, my father looked at me and said, Robert, how much money does a writer or a journalist make? And I said, gee, I don't know, Dad. I have no idea. And he said, Robert, let me get this straight. You want to go into a business and you have no idea about what your economic prospects are. Let me just advise you that in the real estate business, I know exactly how much money you can make. And it's a lot. And you see this nice house. He has a, he had a beautiful house outside of New Hope, Pennsylvania. Big house, nice car. We can do this. We're builders. We can build a home for you. Uh, and is this not of interest to you? I said, well, it is, but I want to be a journalist. And he thought I was, my father thought I was crazy. In the mid-1980s, he started teaching at the Wharton School as an adjunct professor. Uh, he knew the head of the real estate center there, and he brought me in to help him teach the course. And uh, we ended up taking the course curriculum and publishing a book on real estate um, development uh, called Investing in Land, published by John Wiley in 89. And by sheer dumb luck, it was the month CNBC went on the air, April 89. And I knew a friend who was a, got a job there, another sheer dumb luck. Uh, and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm teaching with my father. Horton got a book. And she said, come on as a guest. We just started this thing called CNBC. We're calling it the Consumer News and Business Channel, CNBC. And it's owned by NBC. And we're still figuring out what we want to do. And I, I, I went on. They hired me as the real estate correspondent from 1990 to 96. I was the real estate correspondent. And then in 1997, I became the stocks correspondent. And I became the stocks correspondent because it was obvious we were getting some serious ratings. And we were getting ratings because of this shiny new thing called the Internet. The Netscape IPO had happened in August 95, and that changed everything. All of a sudden, the world just woke up to this thing called the Internet. And boy, that was a sensation. And I caught that wave. CNBC between about 1996 to 2000 was the hottest thing on television. And I always say to people, I hope that there's some time in your career when the wind is at your back and everything is going right, because that's what it was like between 96 and 2000. It was the greatest four years of my life. All of a sudden, we were nobodies for years. And all of a sudden, we were famous. I mean, people stop you on the street to say hello to you like you're astonished. And it was a wonderful run. It ultimately ended with the dot-com bust, which was a problem for only a very small group of people who had overinvested in, in technology stocks. Uh, what was worse was 9-11, which was the year after. And that was a disaster for all of us. All a number of all of us had friends who died. Uh, World Trade Center is only a quarter mile from here. Uh, downtown was a smoking row in a pit for over a year. And it was depressing and awful. So the great times were followed by a horrible couple of years uh, when everyone was miserable and uh, we were in a recession and friends were dead. People were just very unhappy. And there's a section chapter in the book 
um, which was very painful to write about how I almost left um, CNBC and left the stock exchange because I just thought it was all over. And I learned to meditate. I actually joined a, a Buddhist meditation center and it cho- showed me to calm down. And what happened was not my fault. And uh, you have to sort of understand uh, about changing with the times. I mean, you, only, you can't step in the same river twice and all sorts of things. And it, it calmed me down a lot. So yeah. I still meditate. But life changes around you. Right. And you have to learn to adopt to it. We have an expression, uh, pay attention to the things you're in control of. Um, exactly. You know, you're, you're not in control of the direction of the stock market, the direction of interest rates, inflation, all these things that kind of paralyze you and prevent you from doing things that you are in control of, like picking up the phone and talking to your clients, uh, having a good attitude and, uh, and, and staying positive. But I do uh, very much remember that 96-7 period um, when all of a sudden you went into every single clubhouse and club locker room and CNBC was on and, and yeah. everyone was watching CNBC. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and actually it's still, still the case to this day. You're very open in your book about your, uh, investment, uh, successes, your, um, investment mistakes, uh, and how you personally invest and you, and you make the correct observation that not many people that write about investing, whether it's a newsletter or a book, actually talk about what they do personally. And, uh, and it, it made me think that in 32 years, I can count on one hand, Bob, the number of times either an existing client or prospective client that I'm making a presentation to has said, Hank, how are you personally invested? Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's such an, it's such an easy and appropriate question. Yeah. And why don't people ask it? It, it, I I say this in the book. It's amazed me in 30 years. To me, the most people ask me, what do you think of the markets? And they usually mean, what do you think of the markets going to happen in the markets three to six months? They usually mean some intermediate term question. And to me, you know, if somebody was stopping me, I would think the question would be, okay, you're so damn smart. They put your ugly face on TV for 30 years. What do you own? That seems like a rational question to me. And yet people never ask this question. And maybe it's because it's considered impolite or too direct a question to ask a stranger. I guess I get that. But it's sort of the important question. So the one thing I was determined about in this book and I told the publisher is I am going to tell people what I own, but I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to explain the history of what I own. And when I did that, I was confronted with horribly embarrassing situations where I basically did things that I knew were stupid and I knew were not right. Um, and I did them because of what we would call behavioral economic biases that I exhibited. And I started with the very first thing I ever did in early 90s um, when I opened my 401k, which is I bought General Electric stock. I, we're restricted. I'm not allowed to trade you know, st- uh, the stocks specifically uh, or own them, but I'm allowed to own the company stock which at that time was General Electric. And it is hard to describe the influence that Jack Welch, who was the CEO, had on everybody at that time. He was like a god. And I believed him. I knew him. Uh, I'd gone out with him. And so here is the classic bias, overconfidence, not just in yourself, but in your company and your CEO, they can do no wrong. That is a classic bias. And I exhibited that bias. I bought GE stock so aggressively that by 1999, GE had a huge run in the late 90s. By 1999, 
half of my 401k was GE stock. Now, you know, Hank, there is no rule on this, but 50% of your money in your own stock is a <laughs> stupid idea. It is too risky. You need more diversification. And I knew that. It wasn't like I didn't know that. I knew it. I, but I was so under the influence of Jack Welch, that bias that I had, that I just ignored it. And I made a second stupid mistake. When the stock started going down in 2000, we hit, of course, a market top. Um, I held on to it. Um, and here's another classic bias. People tend to hold uh, to sell their winners and hang on to their losers. There's a thing called loss aversion, which is very well studied, uh, where people fear losses greater than, than expectations of gains. Another bias that I exhibited. And I knew this by 2000. I knew about fundamentals. And I go through a list of all the biases people exhibit on behavioral economics in the book. If you want to read it, go ahead. Uh, but the point was, I knew this and I still did this. Why? Because these biases are so powerful in your brain that they're really difficult to overcome. And I described this. I described meeting Jack Vogel, the founder of Vanguard in the mid 90s, how it changed my life, how I became an index guy, how I came to believe in passive investing, how I supported exchange traded funds. Uh, and I walk through stuff. Here's what I own and close. And I, nobody should be surprised that my largest holding I have is the S&P 500. I own it in an ETF. Uh, and that's a core holding for anybody. And I say to young people, they say, well, what should I buy? I don't know. Look, let me make it simple for you. If you're 25 years old, you don't need to think too much. Buy the S&P 500 and hold on. it. Don't even worry about a bond fund if you're 25 years old. Believe me, just keep buying that for a number of years. And call me in 10 years and you can diversify if you want and be creative. And if you think you're a genius and you want to buy, you know, Apple or NVIDIA or something, Vogel always knew this. He said, we know we can't stop people from trying to beat the market. So take 10% of your money and go ahead. Be a genius. Try to trade. But you're going to find out. You're probably, if you're honest, if you know how to evaluate yourself, wins and loses, you're not going to meet the market over time. And I believe that. But I still encourage people to go ahead and pay attention. And if you want to, you know, go ahead and trade, take a small part of your money and go ahead and trade your heart out. But keep the core in long term index funds and don't trade around. Get somebody like you who can sit down, make a plan. And right. people say, what am I doing? I said, look, I'm going to make it very simple for you. How much can, what is your risk tolerance? How much can you afford mentally to lose? How long before you retire? How long do you think you're going to live beyond that? You need to sit down with an advisor and make a plan. Once you have a plan, you trying to trade in and out of the market, like what happened last year, the academic literature is you will lose doing that. That is a bad, bad idea. That is why you pay advisors who will tell you, don't be stupid and think you can trade your way out of a down market. You cannot. I believe every individual should have a honest, it doesn't have to be long, investment policy statement, as Charles Ellis said in his book, Investment Policy. That is 85 to 90 percent of success. If you have a realistic investment plan as you as you just uh as you just said it's amazing how many people don't want to believe this they don't th this impulse to want to beat the market th this in this gambling impulse to want to bet on the raiders jets game with the same you know ferocity you want to bet on nvidia in the 
direction of NVIDIA in the next week is a, a real problem. It, it's a bigger problem now than it was 20 years ago because, or 30 years ago, because 30 years ago, it took a little effort to actually trade on a daily basis, it, particularly before the advent of personal computers in, in the mid-1990s. Um, it took a while to get a confirmation. It took a while to put the order in. Now you're sitting in a bar in Atlantic City with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you can bet on IBM in that millisecond, or you can bet on the Jets game, and it's the same thing. It's a different app, but it's the same thing. And that is qualitatively a different experience, which is why I think the need for plans, the need for financial education and literacy, and the need to just tell people you will lose money trying to day trade. The vast majority, the vast, will lose money. You just don't know how to evaluate your losses. And a lot of people just lie to themselves. They don't even know how to evaluate their losses. So this is why people ask me, do I need a financial planner? I'll say, listen, generally uh, keep costs low, but it's a good idea to sit down with a professional. You want to keep the cost of that professional low. Bogle had this. It's, it's the key, but it's a good idea to talk to a professional. One other mistake that you've highlighted that relates to behavioral uh, yeah. finance, um, and I'll, I'll uh, preface it by saying one of the neat things about the pandemic and Zoom is it allowed viewers to go into people's living rooms or studies. And so when I saw you first out of your study and all these rock and roll posters, uh, you know, my first impression was, wow, I didn't know Bob Pisani was a stoner. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, I, but uh, but then you you talk about how it's your hobby. You collect uh, 1960s rock and roll posters. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Led Zeppelin, and and, I, and the story I think was around Black Sabbath. So this happened during the pandemic when we all they closed the NYC in March 2020 and went home. And I, I collect rock posts. I've done this for almost 40 years, and it's a fun hobby. You know, Jimi Hendrix at the Fillmore. It's a small group of us to collect them. And I believe these people who did this psych it's called psychedelia, uh, are like the Toulouse-Lautrecs of their time. They greatly influenced the visual arts. And you can still see this today, uh, psychedelia-style uh, posters that, that will show up. Uh, so uh, I have these posters. And during the, the, the pandemic, um, I have, was broadcasting from home. And I had these posters behind me. And all of a sudden, my Twitter feed blew up. My coolest factor on Twitter went through the roof. And uh, on the internet, went through the roof. Uh, there was this uh, a a this uh, Twitter feed called Room Raider, uh, which rated the rooms of the people who were reporting at home. Everyone was reporting from home, all the journalists, uh, and just nasty stuff like, "Oh my God, that woman looks like she's in a prison. Is she in? A, <laughs> where where is she? I mean, what the? What's wrong with that? That plant is dead behind that woman." And I got a ten out of ten, which really made me feel good. And I thought to myself. Who knew there were so many old hippies, deadheads, and stoners watching CNBC? But if you think about it, you know, we're older. There were baby boomers. That's the demographic, actually, right, that would right. watch CNBC. It makes sense, although it doesn't sound like it makes sense. It does. There's a chapter in my book about behavioral economics, and I use uh, the posters as an example. So one day, this is some years ago, um, there was an auction going on. Uh, there, there are dealers that will sometimes do auctions of these posters. And there was a Black Sabbath poster from 1975. I don't like Black Sabbath. I never collected the posters. But this is a very famous poster. Ozzy Osbourne's waving his hands in the air. And, and I thought, this is kind of cool. All right. So I, the poster was $250. And I, I bid. 
300, I figure, I don't know what it's worth, three to 500. So immediately I get a bid back, counter bid 400. So oh, that's interesting. So I bid 500, which I thought was sort of the max. And immediately I get another bid 600. Now, when you do that, what, when you get an immediate counter bid, that means that someone has bids above where you are. In other words, somebody's layering bids right. above you. And the question is, do you want to go any further or find out where the bid, where the bid stops? And I, I then bid 600. Already now I'm over. And when you're, when you're a collector, you have to have price discipline whenever you're doing something. It doesn't matter whether you cut coins, stamps, rock posters, whatever. You have to have discipline and walk away. Otherwise, you'll go crazy. You'll go broke. You'll do stupid things. And I violated this. So because I was just curious about who would want this poster because they don't have a big base of, you know, it's not like Led Zeppelin, which has a base of collectors or the Velvet Underground. There's certain groups that are the Grateful Dead, right. big right. collecting group. So I did 600 and oh, the bid's 750 now, immediately 750. And I was thinking, man, this is kind of funny. And I put in 900, bid 1,000. Right there. I mean, instantaneously. So I won't bore you, but about 10 minutes later, I won $3,500. <laughs> I won. And I'm screaming at the, because now I'm really messed. I'm screwed. I'm just violated all the basic rules about doing auctions. And I want, I'm, I cannot understand who on earth would spend $3,500 for a Black Sabbath poster. So the next day I called the dealer who I knew. And this is not really appropriate. You're not supposed to be asking about counterbidders to dealers because it's theoretically it's private auctions anonymous and the dealer said well i, I said i gotta know am i bidding against ozzy osborne who the hell wanted a black sabbath poster for thirty five hundred dollars i gotta know who wanted and he said well I'll, I'll tell you bob i'll tell you who the idiot who, uh, who who bought the poster was it was you. you you bought it you're the idiot right and i stopped and said oh right i am the idiot that was so annoying i said all right well and i later i later found out separately that the counterbidder was a well-known uh, poster dealer in Los Angeles who probably wanted it for a client that he had, maybe some TV movie right. star or something like right. that. God knows. But uh, to this day, you know, the idea that somebody would spend that much money. Anyhow, I had to, I was so outraged. I, I framed the poster, which cost me another $500. So now $4,000 in and hung it on my wall. It still hangs there <laughs> on my wall. Ozzy Osbourne, you know, his arms played in the air. So there's a good behavioral that's economics right. lesson again. That, that's great. Let's close it on this, Bob. Um, you, for 27 years, have brought the same level of energy, enthusiasm, expertise, uh, and really experience that, that there is no price on. When will you know when it's time for Bob Pisani to retire? You know, it's a good question. People leave because either they get too old uh, and I'm getting up there or they get bored with the job. And I'm certainly not bored with that. Or they want to go out and do some other things. And it's quite there are some things I also I want to do. I'm really interested in financial literacy. I'd like to do a lot more with that. It's kind of appalling uh, when I describe my own stupid mistakes. I, it's amazing the mistakes that other people um, make. And I'd like to spend a little time doing a little bit more on financial literacy and education. Well, one of the things is just explaining how things work and how the market works. And I'd, I'd like to do something a little more educational um, down the road. W one of the things that happens in the book that I, I have a couple chapters on is why the future is so hard to figure out. You, you know, one of the things that has baffled me is 
how bad everyone is at predicting the future. I mean, think about this. It's not just weather forecasting, but economists are bad at figuring out the future. Amateur stock pickers are bad at picking stocks. Professional stock pickers are bad, too. Uh, Economists are terrible at predicting the GDP one year from now. And even, Hank, the Federal Reserve itself has a terrible track record predicting a simple thing like the GDP. And why? It bothered me for so many years, and I have a long series of chapters, two chapters on on this, and there's two problems. So this I'll leave you with this about how difficult this business is in predicting the future. The first problem is this 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 behavioral economics thing, the biases people exhibit that infect their thinking and throws their ability to predict things off. So you have Things like overconfidence, you you know, you, you come to believe that you've hit an infallible streak because you have one idea and you're going to be right on everything. That's a, a bias. You have people have herd behavior. They they do. They blindly follow what others are doing. Um, there's confirmation biases where you, you select information that just supports your own point of view and you ignore everything else. This throws off your ability to accurately predict things. That's one problem. Biases. The second is the unknowability of the future. There's a real lack of information because events occur that are unpredictable. So you think like, okay, the Caterpillar analyst, this guy's job is in December. He's supposed to figure out what the price of Caterpillar is going to be one year from now. You think that's pretty easy. It turns out it's really hard because it's so many variables come into play to affect the street future stream of earnings. Uh, the, the CEO and the management staff could change Something could happen to the CEO, all sorts. There are hundreds and hundreds of variables that actually go into trying to figure out what's going to happen to Caterpillar. When you put it into the macro economy, it gets multiplied. So when you look at this, you become very humble, Hank, about trying to predict the future. And instead of saying, you know, everybody's a bunch of idiots um, and being cynical about it, and it's true, people don't really know much about the future, you start to understand. Um, why? I'll leave you with one book. You like books, Hank. It's a wonderful fellow, um, Philip Tetlock, uh, and who's written a series of books about how to improve uh, forecasting. Uh, and he's got a wonderful project called the Good Judgment Project, where he actually tries to teach how to do forecasting better, not just economic forecasting, forecasting in general. And biases is one of the things he talks about. So I would highly recommend looking up Philip Tetlock. He had a big influence um, on me and taught me not just uh how bad everybody is on this, but just how you could theoretically learn to be a little bit better about it. Bob, I want to thank you for joining us to highlight market trends and providing some insights behind the scenes on CNBC. I have to admit, I find the inner workings of broadcast journalism very interesting. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Speaking of Quality, Wealth Management Insights. Make sure to tune in to CNBC to see Bob in action and be sure to subscribe to be alerted to our upcoming episode drops. Until the next time, I'm Hank Smith. Stay bullish. Thanks for listening to this episode of Speaking of Quality, Wealth Management Insights with Hank Smith. To hear future episodes of Speaking of Quality, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Haverford Trust Company, please visit www.haverfordquality.com. This podcast is provided as general commentary and market overview and should not be relied upon as research, a forecast, or investment advice, 
and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt an investment strategy. Any opinions expressed are as of the date this podcast was recorded and may change at any time and are the opinions of that commentator, not Haverford's. Any opinion or information provided are believed by Haverford to be reliable at the time of this podcast recording, but are not necessarily all-inclusive or guaranteed for accuracy. Any index returns presented are for informational purposes only and are not a guarantee of future performance. Indices are unmanaged, do not incur fees or expenses, and cannot be invested in directly. Before making any financial decisions, please consult with an investment professional. Past performance may not be a guarantee of future results. Therefore, no one should assume that the future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy, including the investments and or investment strategies discussed in this strategy, will be profitable or equal to past performance levels.